This is The Guardian. Today, a journey across Florida and into the heart of the issues plaguing American democracy. So, Ollie, how was Disney World? Uh, It was a pleasant experience. It hasn't been pleasant uh, in many months previous to my visit. Oliver Lachlan is Guardian US's Southern Bureau Chief, a job that takes him to lots of interesting places. When we went, uh, we were under strict instructions from Disney that we were not allowed to ask any questions inside the theme park. Um, So basically, we got to sort of wander around. We did go on one ride, um, and that was about it, really. Which ride was that? (laughs) I went on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride, Mike. He was there for a good reason. It's an election year in the US, and even the happiest place on Earth hasn't been spared. When you kind of walking around and and watching how people are interacting with the park and that sort of thing, it doesn't really seem like anything has changed. But obviously, as we know, given um, Disney itself being kind of plunged into the epicenter of Florida's culture wars, that is definitely not the case. The presidential elections are, thank God, still two years away. But this November, Americans will vote in hundreds of elections for seats in the US Congress, governor's mansions and state houses across the country at a time when fears are growing about political violence. With an attack last week on the husband of the US Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, these elections matter a huge amount. If they go badly for the Democrats, Joe Biden's agenda for the next two years might never get off the ground. And that's not all. So much has changed over the past couple of years. And when you speak to people on both sides of the political aisle, they describe these midterm elections as being uh, some of, if not the most consequential midterm elections of their lives, Um, you know, as well as the balance of power in Washington. We're also talking about the state of basic rights in certain states being on the ballot. Ollie's travelled across the US, starting with the state of Florida, visiting unions, meeting candidates for governor, canvassing with local politicians and talking to voters about the issues they care about most this time around. We went from good values, good family values, to uh, lunacy. Lunacy? Lunacy. I mean, I grew up as a strong Catholic Christian family, and I believe in family values. I believe in intact family. Now we're just promoting the young people to do whatever they want to do. I'm really not in favor of all this transgender stuff and the, and the critical race theory. And most people, you know, believe they're just afraid to say it. If that's extreme, then we need a lot more extreme people in this country. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, the midterm elections and what they reveal about America now. So, Ollie, you've been travelling to many different parts of the states as part of this series, but one of the places where you've spent a lot of time was down in the south in the state of Florida. First of all, tell me, why there? Why did you pick that particular state? So Florida is a state I spent a lot of time in during the 2020 election. It has um, for decades been kind of seen as America's kind of quintessential swing state, um, voting sometimes for 
Democrats, sometimes for Republicans. To some extent, many Floridians have kind of been living under the legacy of Trumpism for the past two years because they have an incredibly conservative governor, a guy called Ron DeSantis, who has essentially modelled his tenure and certainly his election campaign in 2018 on Trump himself. So it felt like a really good place to kind of go and gauge the temperature of voters in a state that is still, to all intents and purposes, a swing state, but that has been lurching further and further to the right in recent years. And I'll tell you this, the state of Florida is where woke goes to die. Okay, so as part of this road trip that you took across Florida, one of the places you went to was Disney World. Why there? What does Disney World have to do with the midterms? Disney World has actually been thrust into the center of Florida's ongoing culture wars. Um, And it's really, to me, a kind of marker of the politicization of so many different public spaces that have happened, not just under Donald Trump, but increasingly under Joe Biden as well. And so Disney World came under a lot of intense criticism from the right after it came out criticizing a law passed by DeSantis and the Republican legislature in Florida, a law called, well, colloquially known as the Don't Say Gay Bill, which is a law designed to kind of curb the teaching of gender identity and sexuality in schools across the state. Interesting. Okay. We did an episode on the Don't Say Gay law a few months back, but remind us, how does it work and how did Disney find itself involved? So the Don't Say Gay law and its appropriate title or its its uh, its, its formal title is the Parental Rights in Education law. Uh, it's basically a sweeping bill that was signed into law by Ron DeSantis that outlaws conversation around sexual identity and gender identity from kindergarten to grade three in Florida's schools. We have seen a curriculum embedded uh, for very, very young children, uh, classroom materials about sexuality and woke gender ideology. We've seen libraries. And then beyond that, says that any age inappropriate discussion of those matters should also be outlawed too. And there was a huge amount of criticism, not only from LGBTQ rights activists, but Democrats, moderates as well, who said that this was basically a discriminatory law uh, designed to stoke up fear and hatred um, amongst, um, you know, conservative communities in Florida. And Disney came under intense pressure from uh, its employees to take a stance on this issue. Today, dozens of Disney employees walked off the job. Um, You know, out here just in support of all of our here employees and their families. An act of protest over Florida's so-called Don't Say Gay bill. And so after taking a bit of time lobbying behind the scenes, trying to persuade DeSantis not to sign this bill into law, the company came out after it was signed into law and said this should not have happened. We are ending political donations to both parties in the state and will work to try and get the law repealed. Interesting. How did DeSantis respond to that? DeSantis uh, DeSantis did not respond very well to that at all. He almost instantly came out and said, uh, these guys need to back off. This is not their business. They're a company. They don't have a say in legislative matters in Florida. And as a result, I'm going to look and explore ways in which I can revoke their special tax status in the state. For Disney to come out and put a statement and say that the bill should have never passed and that they are going to actively work to repeal it, I think one was fundamentally dishonest, but two, I think that crossed the line. All right, so Disney stands up against this don't say gay law and finds itself in the firing line. 
how did you find that this issue was playing out on the ground in Florida? How were Republicans trying to use it to their advantage? So we were lucky, we were able to go and film inside Disney World, but we were told that we are basically not allowed to ask any of the guests any questions. And so in order to kind of gauge the mood, we went to the nearest community that we could find by the theme park, which is a place called Celebration. Um, It is a town that was actually designed and built by the Disney company itself. And it's essentially a kind of residential area. It's very, very wealthy upmarket place. A lot of people move in from out of state to be close to the parks. And so we went to meet a guy who was running in the Republican primary for Congress, a guy called Jose Castillo, to speak to Republican voters who live in the town of Celebration. Hey, how you doing? Hey, how you doing? Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. I'm Oliver. Jose Castillo. Hey. All right, so we're going door knocking. We are. So Castillo is an interesting candidate because he's a Disney employee himself and has been making a name for himself on Fox News by appearing on shows like Tucker Carlson, basically laying into his own employer, saying it was not their business to start talking about politics, that there are many conservatives like him who work for Disney who are furious about the company's stance. And he was using his own status as a Disney employee to essentially win over voters in the primaries. We, what we're trying to prevent, you know, what this bill is trying to prevent is indoctrination of our children. But the bill is a sweeping general piece of legislation that doesn't just apply to young children, it applies throughout the entire school age where it says age-appropriate teaching of gender identity and sexuality. So it's really not just about young children, it's about all school-aged children throughout the state of Florida. So, so the bill, is, it, it does, you're right, it targets kindergarten to third grade and it says or age-appropriate. Yeah. yeah, so when is it age-appropriate to talk about uh, it, homosexuality. It, it, it varies by the by the individual. You would you would sue a teacher if they started talking to your daughter about same-sex marriage or LGBTQ issues at the age of 17. If they don't have my consent and I think it's it's not appropriate for my daughter, yes. Wow. Yeah. I think a lot of people would be quite shocked to hear that. And it's really telling about just how polarized the U.S. has become. That even something as sacred as Disney, as Disney World, is no longer immune from the toxic politics of the U.S. But did everyone you met feel the same way that Castillo did, or did you meet some people who wanted to push back against the pressure that Disney was under? So obviously, these kind of culture wars that have been injected into Florida politics over the past few years are a major point that Democrats are using to try and oust DeSantis as governor. They say they're divisive, they're bigoted, um, and they target the most vulnerable members of Florida's community, which are LGBTQ members um, and other minority communities as well. And so I spent time with voters on both sides of the aisle, obviously Republicans, but Democrats too. And in particular, I remember interactions I had with a group of teachers um, who really sort of spoke to me about the chilling effect that this law is having on them just trying to do their jobs. When you hear about that legislation on the news and you hear about, you know, the rhetoric that accompanies it, I just wonder what that feels like as a teacher working in this state. As an arts teacher, I have a lot of LGBTQ students in my classroom that feel comfortable with me, that may not feel comfortable um, with the outside world and their identity just yet. So to me, it feels like it's taking away the ability to, you know, be that positive influence in in those kids' lives. It's been about two decades since the first American state legalised same-sex marriage, nearly 10 years since it was legalised nationally. How have we reached this point where the rights of gay and queer people are again such a lightning rod in American politics? 
I think really it's to do with the modus operandi under the current Republican Party, which is essentially fear-mongering and scapegoating many vulnerable communities around the country. One of the things that happened really only this month was that House Republicans have said that they will attempt to pass a, a national, a federal don't say gay bill, which really shows how some of these state laws in places like Florida and other, other Republican states are kind of becoming testing grounds for what will be or could be the Republican agenda in Congress. Would you support a repeal of same-sex marriage? I'm not for it. I'm not, I'm for, not for it either. I'm not for it. We live in a, a country that votes, but I'm not for it. I think, it, I think it's a travesty. It's not what the Bible says. If you can't follow the Bible, you're doing everything opposite. And just to be clear, obviously, Joe Biden would not sign a bill like that into law. And if the Democrats hold on to the Senate, it will not get through the Senate either. But it's really a kind of chilling, pretentious insight into what might happen if Republicans win in 2024, if they win back the Senate and they win the presidency too. Ollie, you said that the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, was really the driving force in, in turning the state into a kind of laboratory for these culture war issues. Now, DeSantis is actually up for re-election in these midterms. Who's standing against him and what is the Democratic plan for taking him on? So Ron DeSantis is running against a Democrat called Charlie Crist. And Charlie Crist is somebody who I spent some time with back in 2020. Um, he was actually in one of our films from the 2020 season. And he is a former Democratic congressman who was also uh, a Republican governor of the state of Florida. Uh, he was one of the earliest backers of Joe Biden's presidency and kind of became, I think, a face of moderate republicanism during the Obama era, switching sides. So he got absolutely flamed by the party when he was the Republican governor of Florida for meeting and shaking hands with Obama. And that was the point he said to me anyway, that he realized that the leadership of the Republican Party was lurching way too far to the right um, and he could no longer be part of it. And so, yeah, having met him in 2020, I thought it would be a good idea to kind of see where he was now. So we joined the campaign trail for a day. Okay, so Charlie Crist was a Republican. Now he's running to be the Democratic governor of Florida. Did you get a sense of what the issues were that he was seeking to push as he tries to outflank Ron DeSantis? So obviously, Charlie Crist is campaigning very hard against these divisive culture war bills. So don't say gay, uh, outlawing critical race theory in classrooms as well. But actually, above all of that, Charlie Crist is pushing the issue of abortion rights incredibly hard. DeSantis wants to make a statement uh, on abortion and a woman's right to choose uh, because that state attorney said if there's a case that comes to him that is beyond what this law that the governor signed and said there's no exceptions for a woman even in cases of rape or incest, that's barbaric. That's what we have. He's a barbaric wannabe dictator. That's interesting because lifting that ban on abortion was seen as a huge win for conservatives after decades of activism. But it sounds like its aftermath hasn't played out necessarily the way they hoped. What's happened instead? That's absolutely right. And I think realistically, if you look at the polling and the consistent polling on this issue, Republicans should really know that this is not a popular, well, that 
that outlawing abortion is not a public popular issue amongst the majority of Americans. And so what we've seen since the Roe versus Wade decision is that Democrats, not just in Florida, but in many states all around the country, have used that decision to try and galvanize the base, but also to try and bring more moderate, independent and Republican women voters onto their side. And when you talked to Republicans in Florida, did you get the feeling that they shared that sentiment, that this thing that they had fought so hard for for so long was electorally a really difficult thing for them to now overcome? So, yeah, I did speak to Republican voters about this. And obviously, many conservative Republicans will say they are supportive of particularly the law in Florida, which, as I said, is not the most extreme abortion law. The thing about uh, Roe versus Wade, it was not about murder, which I feel abortion is about. It was all about laws and putting the right laws in place and doing the right structure, bringing it back to the states, let the states vote on it. So that's really what it wants to be. This journey is not just about Florida. I've been to other states as well. And in fact, I was just in Indiana, which is one of those states that has enforced a near total abortion ban. And it was incredibly striking to me speaking to Republican or independent female voters in traditionally Republican areas saying that they were appalled by the ban, that they themselves had enjoyed this right for 50 years. They know people who had abortion. Some of them have had abortion themselves, saying that actually, it might be something that would change their party political allegiance, which in this era of polarization is actually an incredibly striking thing to hear. Um, So I think, obviously, an issue as divisive and personal as this has the potential to change people's minds. The real question really is whether the Democrats are poised to take advantage of that. And what have Democrats said? What have they promised voters will happen if they return to Congress when it comes to abortion? So recently and critically, Joe Biden has promised that he would codify Roe versus Wade into federal law if the Democrats win both houses of Congress again. The court got Roe right nearly 50 years ago, and I believe Congress should codify Roe once and for all. Now, obviously, That's a huge if. And a lot of people will be asking, well, you've had control of both houses um, for the past two years. Why didn't you do it before? Um, But that's the choice that he's made. And they've obviously chosen to make it an election issue to try and drive the vote out. Remains to be seen whether it's even going to be possible, because as I've mentioned, the Republicans seem set to win back the House. Ollie, listening to some of the people you've met, it sounds like the US is a country that is intensely divided, which maybe shouldn't be a surprise given it's the same place where just 18 months ago, we saw a mob storm the Capitol building in Washington, believing the most recent presidential election had been stolen. This is the first round of national elections we've seen since January 6. And I wonder how much of that day still resonates with people? It is everywhere. Um, on both sides. Um, Obviously, on the Democratic side, people remain utterly outraged, terrified, really, by what they saw um, at the US Capitol on January 6th. On the other side, you've got a party that I think is actually quite divided on this issue. About 60% of Republican voters do not think that Joe Biden is the democratically elected president of the United States. An astonishing number. Astonishing. It truly is. And 
as I said, I've been having these conversations all around the country, but the moment that really hit home for me in Florida was when I walked into a Republican Party event in Pinellas County. I had expected it to be a kind of classic country club Republican event where you see people uh, dressed in suits talking about the economy. But the first person I met was a woman who was dressed in an orange jumpsuit and told me she was the campaign manager for a guy called Jeremy Brown. And she was dressed in an orange jumpsuit uh, because Jeremy Brown is currently in custody uh, awaiting trial over his involvement in January 6th. He turned up to January 6th just dressed in army fatigues and was a member of the Oath Keepers militia and was later indicted on possession of illegal firearms and trespass on January 6th. The FBI infiltrated the January 6th peaceful protest by patriots with their own FBI insurgents, basically, meaning the Antifa people, BLM, I saw them all there. I was there that day. Well, Jeremy Brown was approached by the FBI back in December, a full month before January 6th, to become an infiltrator and a spy when he refused, when he became a whistleblower. This was a skip forward now, actually, to uh, September of last year, 2021, when the FBI surrounded his home and they arrested him, took all of his guns, his ammo, and they threw him in this the local Pinellas County Jail. That's essentially the background story. And why is he running for office? Uh, to win the seat, it's a, it's a deep blue seat, but also to expose what's going on in our country. So um, we're using this race to reach out to the American people and make sure that his story gets out and what had really happened on January 6th, not what we're hearing in mainstream media. So he's running for state house office while also awaiting trial. Yes. And again, you know, reading statistics on a page is one thing, but actually coming up face to face with stuff like this in a really unexpected way is shocking. And I was completely shocked by what I saw. Not only was his campaign essentially being platformed by the local Republican Party, she got up and gave a speech and said that he was a political prisoner, that Joe Biden was not the elected president of the United States, and that, um, you know, he was being persecuted in prison. And she received a standing ovation from most people in that room. And to me, it was a real eye-opener really on where the state where where this party is at the moment when it comes to election integrity where it comes to these baseless conspiracy theories being pushed by Donald Trump and in terms of January 6 do these midterms have actual consequences or is it just about trying to throw some red meat to the Republican base they have real consequences and obviously as we all know there's an ongoing uh, congressional committee examining the circumstances of the January 6th insurrection examining in particular the actions of Donald Trump himself Republicans have indicated that that committee will be disbanded and they may well actually set up a counter committee to investigate the committee in the first place so what you're likely to see is more of a kind of circus election denialism basically being mainstreamed in Congress. So yeah, it's going to have huge consequences, uh, you know, both at a local, but also federal political level too. I mean, January 6 was such a shocking event. The scenes that we saw coming out of Washington that day, I think changed the way lots of people looked at America. Among Republicans, did you meet people 
who saw it that way, who understood what a transgression it was of the country's democracy. Yes. Yeah, so one of the things I wanted to do when I was in Florida was try and find, um, you know, more less conspiratorial grassroots members of the party. And so I went back to a place that I visited in 2020, a place called Conservative Grounds, which is a coffee shop, a Trumpy, a Trumpist coffee shop, which kind of became a organizing spot for uh, Trump Republicans during the uh, 2020 election. It's not a bad name, Conservative Grounds. Conservative Grounds, yeah, it's it's quite witty. Um, (laughs) I never actually got to taste the coffee, unfortunately. I felt that might be uh, interfering too much. Next time, for the 2024 elections. Um, Yeah. And so I went back in there just to kind of see uh, Cliff, who was the owner who I met before, who was a diehard Trump loyalist, Trump supporter, um, who was also at January 6th. Now, just to be very clear, he went to the rally. Uh, He did not go and march on the Capitol, did not go inside and actually condemned what happened and what he saw that day. I think it was bad. It was a terrible day. It it stained the Trump presidency more than you know most people could ever imagine, and it, it harmed him a lot. And I think I think that will probably come back to harm him, you know, if he runs again. Yeah, I really believe that. Yeah. You know? um, so Trump's not infallible, you know. But when he said, "Hey, I'm going to have a speech," you know, that day, and I went, I bought my plane ticket. I never thought he encouraged me to storm the castle. I never thought he encouraged me to break any laws. I never thought he encouraged me to create any violence or harm anybody. I don't believe that, you know. Um, now, some people might have read the tea leaves differently, you know. And Ollie, obviously the political violence we saw on January 6 hasn't ended there. Just on Friday morning, we learned that Paul Pelosi, the 82-year-old husband of the Democratic Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, was attacked with a hammer, raising fears that we might see even more violence in the lead up to next Tuesday's elections. And that must only deepen your concerns about these different realities that Americans are increasingly living in. Yeah, of course, you're right. And we are still waiting for the authorities to give us more information on the alleged attacker's motivations. But certainly there's reporting that emerged that seems to link uh, the individual to postings around other conspiracy theories like the QAnon conspiracy theory, also election denialism. And while some Republicans have come out and condemned the attack, they've kind of made it an issue about both sides, saying there's political violence that's been happening on the other side of the aisle as well, um, which, again, when you look at the statistics, is not really borne out by fact. Um, one person who has not come out and condemned what happened is Donald Trump, a very important voice, obviously. Um, and this is not the first time that Donald Trump has been slow to react to violence that has been meted out, allegedly, um, from his own supporters. And obviously that happened during January the 6th. I mean, meeting these people, travelling around the country and spending so much of your time marinating in this conspiracy theory culture. Did you come up with any theories of of where it all came from, why it spread so quickly and it has become almost the orthodoxy of one of America's largest parties? Like, How did this all happen? It's pretty simple, to be honest, Mike. I think it's really to do with Trump himself and the cult of personality that exists around him as an individual, him as the former president, him as somebody who has pushed this theory ever since he lost the election. Now, if you want Trump's endorsement in many of these states where there are kind of 
key election races going on, you essentially have to buy into the big lie to, to win him over and to get him to support you. Coming up, what the midterms might tell us about the return of Donald Trump. Hey, I'm Shantae Joseph. I'm a writer and broadcaster and I spend way too much time online. But now those years of scrolling are finally paying off because I'm hosting The Guardian's new pop culture podcast. In each episode, I'm going to get under the skin of the week's biggest stories. If you love pop culture and want to get into how it's shaping and impacting our lives, then you should join me every Thursday. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Out now. Bye. So, Ollie, it sounds like even though he's not on the ballot, the man who still looms over all of this is Donald Trump. Did you get a sense of how popular he still is from your travels? There obviously are, like, you know, more centrist, reasonable Republicans who think that what he's done to the party, particularly with this election conspiracy stuff, has done huge amounts of damage to um, electoral prospects going forward. It's not clear whether this issue is a real vote winner when it comes to independents, more moderate Republicans in particular. Um, but obviously, among the base, he remains incredibly popular. And you said that one of the people who would challenge Trump would be the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis. And Trump has announced he's holding a rally in Miami just two days before the midterms, but hasn't invited DeSantis, which some are seeing as a high profile snub. But how much of a contest is there between the two men? Could DeSantis actually beat Donald Trump? So according to some polls uh, that have come out recently, Ron DeSantis is basically the, the sort of most, well, the second most popular figurehead in the Republican Party at the moment. He kind of polls consistently behind Trump, quite significantly behind at the moment, but it's way, way too early to know exactly how that will bear out. In terms of their politics, uh, yeah, I mean, when Ron DeSantis ran for governor in 2018, he basically ran his entire campaign, basically saying that he was Donald Trump's number one supporter. He famously had a campaign advert where he was reading extracts of Donald Trump's autobiography to his infant son um, and had a Make America Great Again uh, flag in his son's cot. And so I think that will obviously be, if they do face off against each other, um, a pretty difficult thing for him to overcome. Where does he distinguish himself from Trump? Obviously, Trump this time around, if he does run, has a huge amount more baggage than he did in 2016, not least the multiple criminal and civil investigations going on into his tenure as president and also his business affairs. Obviously, also just the optics and what happened at January 6th too. One last question. This is a hypothetical question. So forgive me. It's 2024 and you're voting in the Republican primary. You have two names in front of you. One is Ron DeSantis, one is Donald Trump. Where does your ballot, where does your cross go? I'll start. I think a dream team would be Trump and DeSantis, but I will vote for Trump. I don't think DeSantis is quite ready. I'd like to see him with Trump. But I would vote for Trump first. Anybody would back DeSantis. And I love DeSantis. Um, I would back DeSantis only it's kind of a a sad hit because in Florida we'd lose him. We need him to stay in Florida. But yeah, I'd back DeSantis. 
I think I would be torn because um, I love DeSantis. I love Trump as a president, but we don't want to lose DeSantis. And the only problem with Trump is he sometimes puts his foot in his mouth and makes it easy for, you know, attacks from the left. Ollie, there used to be a time when correspondents like yourself would tour the US in the lead up to an election and it would be kind of fun. It would be colourful, full of, of these slightly whimsical encounters with weird and interesting people. But it doesn't sound like covering America is like that anymore. And I'm wondering how this journey you've taken in Florida and other states has left you feeling about both the midterms and American democracy as a whole. I mean, you're right. And to be candid, it is pretty exhausting um, going into a lot of these spaces where you are essentially speaking to people, and I'm talking about people on the conservative Republican side, who are living in an alternative reality, um, you know, talking about stolen elections, talking about other wild conspiracy theories as well. And as a reporter, it's very difficult to find ways to meaningfully engage with that. But I think on top of all of that is this real overarching concern about the state of American democracy itself and what happens if in states like Arizona, in states like Pennsylvania, these election deniers who have threatened to overturn election results, who have not expressed confidence in the ballot in 2020, assume power. And that is deeply concerning, especially when you think about what will happen in 2024 and the next presidential election. Ollie, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Mike. That was Oliver Lachlan, Guardian US's Southern Bureau Chief, whose video series, Anywhere But Washington, you can find at theguardian.com. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Joe Glanville, Lucy Hoff, and Ivor Manley. Sound design was by Axel Kakutier. The executive producer was Homer Kalili. And we'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.